Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. On April 1st, 1945, which was not only April Fool's Day that year, but Easter Sunday, an invasion force of American and British ships landed an army of four Army divisions and three Marine Corps divisions on the island of Okinawa. These 180,000 men would fight to gain control of the island and islands of Okinawa, the first of the Japanese territory to be invaded, until June 22nd. It was the bloodiest battle of the Pacific and nearly the bloodiest battle that Americans fought in World War II. With me to discuss the Battle of Okinawa and its effects is Saul David. He is Professor of Military History at the University of Buckingham, author of numerous works of history as well as of fiction, and a broadcaster. His most recent book is Crucible of Hell, which is the subject of our conversation today. Saul David, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks very much, Al. Very nice to be here. So, um... I just, uh, you know, I read the British papers uh, from out of habit, and uh, I noticed every year uh, is VE Day is a big is a big thing, and just this year was no exception. Um, and uh, I know that I'm I'm certain that you must have read uh, George McDonald's Fraser's uh, wonderful memoir of Burma. Um, and uh, there's a great one of the many comic segments um, is when. Uh, they're about to uh, assault a, a Japanese-held village, and a young subaltern uh, runs out in front of them and says, Men, the war in Europe is over, which is greeted with blank stares of incomprehension, followed by lots of cursing, and and, 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 and who gives a damn? Yeah. Um, go on. And that, that, that was fairly typical, I think. Um, I, the, the problem we have in Europe is thinking that VE Day ended the war, and of course we know it didn't. And not only did we have British troops fighting in, in Burma, we also had a lot of ships out there, as you've already alluded to in the introduction. And one of the interesting things about the soldiers on Okinawa, and of course we'll come to that story in a moment in more detail, is their first reaction was, we're not that bothered, apart from the possibility that this might release troops to enable us to get the job done quicker against Japan. So they very much were of the sense that it was nothing to celebrate per se, it was just a, a stepping stone along the way. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is amazing. There's just, you just can't get away from, unless you really work at it and work at the at historic, the his, active historical thinking in which you try to divorce yourself from knowing what actually happens later. Well, um, that, that's the problem. I mean, it's a problem with all history, Al, as you well know, I don't need to tell you that. Uh, there's a, there's a terrible tendency of th thinking things are going to be inevitable and also not understanding the thought processes of people as they move along the beats of the story. And certainly in April, uh, 1945, at the point at which the battle of Okinawa begins, uh, no one knows what's going to happen next. And there's very much a sense that the fight against Japan is going to be long and very bloody. So let's talk about Okinawa. Um, let's talk about Okinawa just as, um, as as the islands and the community as it existed before the war, and then in, sort of in the in the build up to the American assault as the rest of the Pacific campaign is going on. Yeah, well, it's uh, you know it's it's a sizable island. It's the most southerly of the of the forty seven prefectures of of Japan. So it is part of Japan proper. It's it was incorporated towards the end of the nineteenth century into Japan proper. Had of course been. Uh, an independent kingdom prior to that, and was a different ethnic makeup to uh, the, the Japanese home islands. There, there was an element of Japanese in some of the Okinawan uh, ethnic makeup, but also Chinese as well, and, and other elements. And, and they very much felt themselves separate, and so did the Japanese. But as the years got closer to the Second World War, and certainly as the Second World War moved through its, its early stages, you, you, you get a, a much closer association between Okinawa and, and the Japanese home islands in the sense that the uh, Japanese authorities are trying to make the Okinawans more Japanese. You can see this in the education system. You can see this in the, in the civil service. And they're very much trying to bring the Okinawans into line with the rest of Japan. And what I found particularly interesting looking at the story from the Okinawans' point of view is actually how enthusiastic many of them were for the war 
that is the Japanese war uh, in all its success in the early years. Uh, and as, of course, you move through the uh, 1940s and the tide begins to turn, particularly, of course, uh, with the advances of the Americans in the Pacific, uh, the tone among the Okinawans begins to change. What happens specifically in the year before the uh, actual battle itself is certain uh, Japanese officers identify Okinawa as a likely battleground. Uh, in particular, uh, one of the key figures in the story, the, uh, the, the senior staff officer who uh, plays an absolutely major role in the battle itself in, in, in sorting out the tactics. And he uh, identifies it as a likely battlefield site and encourages the high command in Tokyo to devote more troops to its defense. So you get a gradual buildup of troops. And at the same time as that buildup of troops, you get a creation of a really very formidable network of defenses uh, that at least in part is constructed with Okinawan um, civilian labor. So pretty much by the summer of 1945, the whole of the civilian population on Okinawa is now devoted to the war effort in some shape or form. Uh, you know, And for many of them, this is backbreaking work, as you can imagine, as they're trying to construct these defensive systems. Um, just to backtrack two minutes, um, how did they integrate Okinawans into the civil service? And was this, um, um, it's very striking um, in your account of how Okinawans began to um, feel emotionally involved in the expansion of Imperial Japan in a way that other, how shall we say, recently subject uh, Asian peoples, <laughs> for, even in, as, in the, from as early as the late 19th century, had a, still had a very adversary anti-colonial relationship with Imperial Japan. Yes. I mean, when I say uh, integration into the, into the civil service, I mean, needless to say, the senior posts were all still retained by the Japanese, the governor, uh, chief of police and that sort of thing. But certainly the the Okinawans were, were playing a role in their own self-government, as it were. And an awful lot of them were drawn into the defense of the island uh, through the militia and also through even the, the, even the teenage militia groups that were set up both for females who would act as nurses and young teenage boys who would actually play a military role, albeit a kind of auxiliary military role during the battle itself. So, so what's the population of Okinawa at the beginning of 1945? Well, it had been uh, during the during the middle part of the Second World War as as, as large as 450,000 people. Mm -hmm. By the time of the battle itself, it's probably down to about 375,000 because the Japanese government has actually tried to move some of the population away from the island, knowing that there's going to be a battle there. Now, you may say, well, why didn't they move everyone? Logistically, it was tricky to do that at that stage. I'm not sure they even had the intention to do that. Certainly, they moved 80,000, uh, most of them to Kyushu uh, and Honshu, the main islands, uh, the main Japanese islands further north. That left about 375,000. And of that number, a, a, a a reasonable proportion was encouraged to go to the north of the island because the Japanese by that stage had decided to defend the southern third. Now, uh, that forced migration actually wasn't that effective. And I would suggest, although we don't know the exact numbers, that at least half the population, if not more, are still resident in the southern third of the island, which is where most of the major towns were and which is where you would expect the bulk of the population to be anyway. And uh, could you describe a little bit more about the... Um... The defensive um, efforts that were made in the year up to the American invasion, um, the Allied invasion, um, they are based upon the experience of the Pacific War thus far, and they are even more, well, ingenious than, say, Iwo Jima. Yes, that's which correct. Was, uh, the which was sort of the apex of defensive development up to that point. Yeah, and Palalu before it, uh, which which yeah. also plays a, a significant role in, in Japanese defensive thinking. But what's interesting about the sequence of events is that the original plan uh, devised by the Japanese in, in the defense of the island is actually to be very aggressive. They are going to fight the Americans on the beaches and they're going to try and defeat them before they land, which is pretty much what they'd done on every other island up to that point. And it also fitted very much within the uh, Japanese military's tactical thinking, you know, which is very aggressive. You, you bring the enemy to battle as quickly as possible. You don't sit on the defense. What changes towards the end of 1944 is that one of the key military forces on the island, some argue that the, the most elite uh, military force on the island, the 9th Division, which is very experienced earlier on in, in the war, is taken off the island and moved elsewhere. 
And this is quite a severe blow to Colonel Yahara, the staff officer I mentioned earlier, who, who's really in charge of the defensive strategy because he calculates that they no longer have, there's about 25,000 men in that division. And, and so they go down from a, from a number of probably about 115,000 to now about 90,000. It gets bumped up probably to about 100, maybe a little bit more than that by the time the battle begins. But Yahara calculates that he no longer has enough reliable troops to engage the Americans on the beach, and they've now got to very much fight a defensive warfare. So he devises this incredibly intricate system of defensive positions, which uses the geography of Okinawa, which is a series of, of ridgelines, rocky ridgelines, uh, uh, running east to west all the way down the island, particularly in the southern third of the island, that enables the Japanese to construct this very formidable system of defences. And what do I mean by that? Well, as you say, they learned from Iwo Jima and Peleliu to create effectively underground bunkers with slits, uh, uh, um, observation points, machine gun posts. And what's so clever about this system is that in building this underground network, more than 60 miles of underground trenches are developed, or underground tunnels are developed in total. You can imagine the amount of work that needs to go into that, Al. But what's so clever about this system or so destructive about the system for anyone attempting to attack it is that it fires in both directions. So if you consider a normal defensive system where you have to capture a ridgeline, once you've got to that ridgeline, it's really a question of capturing the next ridgeline. And so it was in Okinawa, but you had the dastardly problem of having troops within the ridgeline that you had already captured, literally underground. And when you try and advance to the next ridgeline, you'll be shot in the back. And that's exactly what happens on multiple occasions during the battle itself. So what's the situation in the war in the Pacific up to that moment? Um, briefly, um, MacArthur and uh, it, commanding in the uh, south, and then Nimitz in the coming from the, in the Navy, coming from the direction of Pearl Harbor. They have argued about whether to go to the Philippines. MacArthur prevails. Uh, they're landing in the Philippines at about, um, well, they're landing in um, Luzon at about this time, I believe. Um, and, yeah, yeah. End of 44, uh, the beginning of 44. Yeah. And um, the Navy has decided, has done its you know island hopping campaign, uh, island after island after island, as you said, Peleliu and then Iwo Jima. And now it's finally reached Okinawa. Um, why Okinawa? Hadn't they thought about going to Taiwan or Formosa at the t uh, also? Uh, why did they end up at Okinawa? They had indeed thought of going to uh, Formosa. Uh, that, uh, that was on the agenda as, as, as recently as the autumn of 1944. Um, they finally settled on Okinawa really to short circuit the problem of, of having to take Formosa, which was quite a formidable proposition, actually. It's a much bigger island, of course, modern Taiwan. It had a large Japanese garrison there and it was sighted, and this is the key point, further away from the Japanese home islands. What they're really looking for uh, when they uh, decide on attacking Okinawa is um, a huge mobile base and effectively a floating aircraft carrier. They are going to use Okinawa as the staging post for not only bombing uh, the Japanese home islands to prepare them for the final invasion, but also as a base to launch that final invasion from. They are just 400 miles from Kyushu, which is the, 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 the southernmost of the Japanese home islands. So that you can see that's a relatively short uh, distance for planes to have to fly. It, up to that point, they'd had to go much, much longer distances. So what you've really got, you, the, the way to think about Okinawa is, is finally these two prongs that have been advancing, as you say, with Nimitz in the central Pacific uh, and MacArthur down up up from New Guinea through the Philippines, that's the more southerly prong. You've now got these two prongs meeting in a single location, and that is Okinawa. And once they've taken Okinawa, that is that is perceived to be the final staging post before the invasion of the Japanese home islands themselves. Um, and there's been a, I think, debate amongst military historians, as, as best as I can make out, about whether or not certain of these island attacks were um, justified. Uh, MacArthur certainly at the time thought it was. Um, that Navy admirals who knew nothing about a uh, certain land strategy or tactics uh, were wasting um, brave Marines on um, islands that they did not really need. Um, and uh, rather than uh, choosing their battles and avoiding garrisons, as he had done at Rabaul on uh, New Britain, I believe, um, and just let the uh, garrison starve to death. Um, 
the uh, was Okinawa necessary? I mean, Iwo Jima is extremely questionable assault. Um, whether it was really needed by the Army Air Forces as a um, emergency landing uh, strip is, is, is remains a somewhat questionable decision to take. It was Okinawa as questionable. I, no, I don't think so. I think you can question Peleliu, you can question Iwo Jima, and probably one or two others, but not not Okinawa in my in my view because of its size. Really, this is the this is the key point about it. It's its size and its location. Its size is big enough to be used, as I as I made the point before. Not only does it have multiple airfields, which are vital for both bringing in supplies and being used as a jumping off point to attack Japan, but also it's large enough, both in terms of its harbors and and its and its landmass to be able to house a significant part of the eventual invasion army, uh, the, the army that will invade Japan proper. So, no, I don't think it was a, a mistake to invade Okinawa. I think it was the right thing to do, and they possibly could have done it earlier. What um, was the Japanese strategy by this point? Uh, merely to delay the uh, uh, invasion, the final invasion of, the, say, Kyushu and then Honshu as, for as long as possible? Um, to make the Americans bleed out every possible life? Or was it something bigger than that? That that was their end game, but they had another um, dastardly plan, which in my view was hopelessly optimistic, but they had it nonetheless. We know this from, from records of the meeting of the Imperial General Headquarters in in Tokyo, at which all the major services are, are present at the, a lot of those meetings. And what is clear is that by January 1945, they seriously consider the possibility that they are going to be able to defeat the next major battle uh, against the uh, Americans using air power and ship power alone. Now, by this point, they hardly had any ship power uh, left. So really, we're talking about air attacks. And if you think about earlier on in the war, and this is particularly from the British perspective, when the Prince of Wales and the Repulse, uh, two of our finest capital ships, are sunk by air power, you get a sense of how skewed the Japanese thinking might have been later on in the war, where they consider that planes flying from landmass, which of course they were able to do in relation to Okinawa, would be incredibly destructive against uh, an enemy fleet. And that, of course, was the case. But what they weren't reckoning on it is, or maybe they were reckoning on it, but they think they thought their kamikaze and and uh, conventional air attacks would be more successful. But what they what they didn't properly calculate is the sheer size of the fit of the U.S. Fifth Fleet, which included the largest fleet put together by the British or the Royal Navy during the course of the. Um, uh, of the Second World War. So it was a massively powerful fleet with, with more than 20 frontline aircraft carriers alone and with all the air power that that can carry with it, with all those planes on all those ships. So you can see it's going to have to be incredibly destructive. But that is what the Japanese thought it would be, this, this, uh, this operation, this air operation, Tango, as it was known, that it was going to launch against the US Pacific fleet. And therefore, its strategy was as simple as this. With conventional and kamikaze air attacks, it would cause so much destruction of the U.S. Fifth Fleet, so it so they believed, that the U.S. Fifth Fleet would have to withdraw, much like the U.S. Fleet had done temporarily during the Guadalcanal campaign in 1942, and yeah. therefore any American troops that had already landed on Okinawa would simply need to be mopped up. It, it, it seems hard to believe that that was their strategy, but that is what the records tell us it was. Uh, I suppose from the Japanese perspective, it was fortunate that the people actually on the ground in Okinawa had no faith in that strategy, quite understandably, and took their own uh, uh, means, uh, decided on their own means of defeating the Americans if they landed. And that was eff effectively a, a defensive battle of attrition. So what was the order of battle, briefly? I mean, I've given some indication of that. You just said 20 aircraft carriers. There are four U.S. Army divisions. There are two or three U.S. Marine divisions. Uh, what's, there's a Royal Navy component, um, which is what, five of the 20 aircraft carriers are Royal Navy? Yeah, and it, it was it, it, the overall numbers of you know the Amer Amer the the Allied fleet was thirteen hundred strong. Of course, those aren't all warships, but there was a nope. huge component of warships. Uh, the largest uh, fleet ever assembled uh, in the Second World War uh, in terms of fighting power was involved in this battle with the U.S. Fifth Fleet. Now, against that, the Japanese, as I've already said, had very few. Uh, naval assets to to put into the fray. They do, in fact, launch, of course, at one stage during the battle, their final super battleship, Yamato. But that is pretty much a suicide mission. And there's no and there's no hope that that's 
seriously going to be able to to alter the balance it's just it's just throwing another another chip into the into this huge gamble as it were um i think m- much more significantly from the japanese defensive position on okinawa they have about 90,000 regular japanese troops and another 20,000 Okinawan uh, militiamen. Now that is a significant force and a far bigger garrison than any of the garrisons that have fought the Jap- that have fought the Americans. Sorry, in in the Pacific campaign, in in these uh, in these kind of island type campaigns up to that point. Uh, I've also talked about the defensive uh, positions that the uh, Japanese have created. Of course, against that, the Americans are able to put an initial invasion force of about 180,000 strong. They don't all land on the first day, of course, but that's that's the total number of troops they've got to go onto the ground in Okinawa. And that's backed up by an enormous naval force. So something like a half a million Allied servicemen were involved in this battle in one shape or form. Um, in other words, the the Americans, the Allies uh, more generally, have a huge advantage in numbers. Uh, they also have, and this is another crucial point, they they also have effectively for most of the battle complete air superiority. So you've got, as I've explained, these endless attacks coming from uh, land-based Japanese fighter squadrons over Okinawa, but they have to fly to get there, a minimum of 400 miles and in some cases longer. And that doesn't give them much combat time, whereas the American planes that are fighting on Okinawa are not only flying off airfields on the island, they're also flying off, off, the, off the carriers just offshore. And as a result, they are able to take complete advantage, as I say, almost complete air superiority, certainly during the course of the actual ground battle. And this is a massive advantage for, for the Allied troops. You, you effectively have a battle that can only end one way uh, if you're being realistic. Uh, the question is how long it's going to take and how many lives are going to be lost during the course of it. What are the, um, we've already talked about the Japanese defensive tactics. Um, are the American uh, tactics for clearing out the Japanese defenses much the same as they've been on every island or do, or do they have to refine them and uh, improve them? They do have to refine and improve them. And, and I suppose in some ways that there had been this gradual attempt to refine and improve the methods by which you're, you're, you're going to winkle uh, very determined fighters. Because the other thing we haven't really discussed yet, and of course is a hugely significant part of this whole process, is that the Japanese give or take the odd uh, a rogue do not surrender. And so it's not just a question of overrunning a position and then effectively taking surrender everyone who's within that position who can no longer be resupplied can no longer withdraw they're still going to fight to the end so you've got to winkle them out of these incredibly formidable defensive positions and you know there are only so many ways you can do that you can send troops in to get them and that's going to be very costly or you can use whatever kind of firepower you've got to hand and you know it's horrible to 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 have to uh, admit it but pretty much any method uh, that could be effective was used, including the use, the early use of napalm. They use, they literally poured gasoline into some of these um, some of these caves and set them on fire. Uh, they used flamethrowers, both from tanks but also uh, handheld fl- flamethrowers. Uh, they described the method in which Japanese uh, soldiers would be winkled out, effectively killed in these holes. Uh, as corkscrew and burn, and that and that pretty much sums up, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, what they did. Horrific as it sounds. Well, you know, at least half of it's metaphor, but the other half isn't. No. Um, good yeah. So, um, and the and you've already also alluded to the um, is this the kamikaze tactics on at sea and in the air? Is this the first time that the that suicide attacks have been used um, as a official method, uh, sort of? They, they had happened before, of course, and, and really any kind of suicidal bonsai charges are suicide tactics. But uh, had suicide air attacks been used uh, so systematically and methodically in, in past engagements in the Pacific? They had been, but, but not as early as some people might imagine. They, 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 the earliest official use of, of uh, squadrons, that is, you know, um, collections of planes flying in, in kamikaze formation with the intention of literally self-immolation, you'll fly the plane into into an American um, uh, naval asset, was the Philippines campaign. So that's towards the end of 1944, when things were beginning to get quite desperate for the 
Japanese, and they they set up these uh, these squadrons of kamikaze pilots. Now, you might have thought, well, it's going to be quite difficult to recruit for these uh, for for these squadrons, but you know, it really wasn't that difficult. And it's amazing how how many people came forward to uh, to effectively end their lives for the for you know for the for the cause of Japan and in in the defense of their homeland. And and to understand that motivation, which was one of the key things in the book, you know, I as a as a Westerner. You know, it's very difficult to get your head head around why someone would effectively be what we see today in modern Islamist Islamist mm. terms as as a suicide bomber. Why would you agree to do that? And and you can only really get your head around that when you understand the sort of culture, uh, religion, and influence that a lot of these Japanese servicemen had had on their lives up to this point. They they did not see suicide uh, as a disgraceful act. In fact, within Shintoism, which was as close as you had to a a Japanese state religion, it was very much uh, felt that self-sacrifice, suicide, suicide for a cause, as it were, was to be applauded, not 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 to be denigrated. They they certainly didn't have the Judeo-Christian uh, kind of sense that suicide was beyond the pale and it was to be avoided at all costs. It was the opposite of that. And going along with that was very much a sense among the kind of warrior uh, ethos of of Japanese military culture that to surrender was a disgraceful act, which is why, of course, the Japanese treated so many allied uh, prisoners of war so barbarically. I mean, it's not a justification, but it is an explanation. And Mm -hmm. they, on the whole, would not surrender themselves. That doesn't mean there weren't any Japanese servicemen who surrendered. There were, and there were during the Battle of Okinawa, although the majority of them, uh, I have to stress, were Okinawan uh, conscripts rather than actual, you know, fully fledged Japanese home island um, soldiers. But nevertheless, there were some examples. But the numbers pale into insignificance when you consider the total number of Japanese who refused to surrender and were willing to fight to the death. Well, let's talk about casualty rates because this is something that military historians understand better than, well, that's sort of the the numbers that you deal with. Uh, could you explain how to read casualty rates? Um, I mean, give the casualty rates to Okinawa and then explain you know, how, when you see them, you think differently about it than other historians, let alone, say, doctor, a doctor. Yes, well, casualty a casualty to a military historian is really really has four ca- categories. It's, it's death, and that's the most obvious one. But that is almost always the smallest number. So let's say, for example, I was to say, I'll give you the actual casualty figures in a minute, but I'll just give you an illustration mm. to begin with. Let's just say you've, you've, you've got a battle and there are 10,000 casualties. You might expect of that 10,000 casualties, uh, probably up to a half to be wounded. Uh, of that, of the, oh, on top of that, of the, other, of the other 50%, maybe 10, possibly 20% will be killed. Now, the remainder will be made up of prisoners of war and missing. Missing sometimes, they sometimes turn up, but generally speaking, those are dead who haven't been identified. So you can get a sense that the total number of killed within those casualty figures is rarely more than about a fifth. What is... So what, let me give you. Let me give you an. Sorry. Let, let me give you a, a, a for instance here, just to, to respond. So what if I give you, say, uh, casualty figures of three hundred dead, uh, one hundred and twenty wounded, and five taken prisoner? What would you immediately say to that? Uh, that then I, I would immediately say to that those are very high casualty figures in, in terms of dead in relation to to wounded and prisoner. And you know, and I'm, I'm guessing that that was from an earlier engagement that involved the Japanese. No, I mean, I just made them up off the top of my head. Uh, But if I saw that, I would think "Mm, something nasty went on there. Yeah, something Um, very nasty. So you know that what it also tells us, Al, is that the motivation, either motivation and or discipline and or kind of fear instilled into troops is of an incredibly high of an incredibly high order, because generally speaking, in most battles, as I've already said, you won't, you you will rarely get more than a fifth of total casualties uh, killed. And and remember that casualties are only proportion of the actual number who began the fight in the first place. So if you've got a hundred thousand soldiers defending a position and fifty thousand of them are casualties, you're unlikely to get more than ten thousand dead. What happens on Okinawa? as far as the Japanese are concerned, it turns those traditional type of casualty figures completely on their head. Hmm. So what are they? So they start out, we think, 
with about 100 to 110,000 defenders on the ground. And of that original 100 to 110,000, 90 to 95% of them are killed. Um, They're either killed or they commit suicide. I I would suggest the majority are killed. Uh, You have 7,000 out of that 110,000 taken prisoner. Uh, Some of them, of course, would be wounded. And of that 7,000, as I've already alluded to, a significant number of them were Okinawans. In other words, of the actual Japanese soldiers defending Okinawa, hardly any of them surrendered and almost 100% of them, not quite, were killed. Mm -hmm. Um. What about the losses amongst Okinawan civilians, which is the really horrible part of the story, isn't it? Yes. I mean, you know, it's one thing for Japanese soldiers to to agree as, you know, combatants to fight to the death, to be willing to fight to the death. It's quite another to be caught into the maelstrom of a a horrific battle like this, which is what happens to the Okinawan civilians. Now... um, savagely i suppose when you when you when you when you when you when you kind of bring it all out into the open what the japanese have convinced the okinawans of even before the battle starts is that the americans are savages when they arrive if they arrive if they get a foothold on the island uh, they are going to murder rape and kill okinawan civilians therefore it's far better for the okinawans to kill themselves kill kill themselves kill their own families and then commit suicide. Uh, that is exactly what the Japanese persuade a significant proportion. We will never know how many, but a significant proportion of the 125,000 uh, oh. Okinawan civilians who are killed or die during the battle. Uh, that is a third of the pre-war population. And, it, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to get your head around. Uh, undoubtedly, some of the most moving sections of the book, certainly in terms of the sources that I read and included in the book, were were the Okinawan civilians talking about issues like this. One particular boy who was just 16 at the time uh, describes how he's convinced by Japanese soldiers not only to kill his mother and his two siblings, but then to commit suicide himself. The reason we know that story is because for one reason or another, he doesn't kill himself and he survives the battle and, of course, lives for the rest of his life regretting what he's done and horrified at, 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 uh, at what the Japanese soldiers made him do. We have to read the book to find out uh, how that happened. Um, it's, it's, uh, there's this recent book, and I forget the author's name, about suicides in Germany, which has been quite stunning for people to realize how many people committed suicide yeah. uh, with the fall of, of Nazi Germany. Yeah. Um, it, it also t- tells me the way in which we take the Japanese suicides for granted, um, which we shouldn't. Um, it's the they, they go on? just to make a final point um al they, they had managed to transfer their own kind of belief that it was laudable to die in the service of your nation and your emperor onto the okinawan civilians uh you know if the if the if the americans are going to take over the island you know what's the point of of, of surviving you may as well kill yourselves and you know it's it's unbelievably uh, uh, moving to imagine what would the effect that that had on the population and their willingness, frankly, to actually go along with that sort of nonsense. Um, they did. And, and there are still Okinawans today who, who bemoan regret for all the tension that there is in modern day Okinawa between the American servicemen that are still on the bases on the island. And this has been well documented in recent years. There are plenty more who have knowledge of the Second World War, who still have knowledge of the Second World War, and who point out that actually when the Americans did arrive on the island in 1945, in most cases, not in every case, but in most cases, they did their best to help feed uh, and look after the civilian population. Just, um, uh, you know, in, in your research, I mean, one of the, the themes uh, about the Pacific War in um, the last 20 years or a little bit longer has been that it was a uniquely racialized war um, and that Americans... Um, were driven by a sort of race hatred to commit awful acts against the Japanese. Um, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of responses I could make to that, um, although this is not my period. Um, but what what's your take on that after having studied this brutal, awful campaign with such tension? Well, um, of course, like a lot of these these claims, there's a kernel of truth in it, and the kernel of truth is that 
there was certainly more of a racist feeling among Americans, American servicemen, towards the Japanese than there was, say, for example, between American servicemen and their German opponents in, on the Western Front in Europe and the Mediterranean. And, you know, yeah. there are obvious reasons for that. We need we didn't go into that. A lot of Americans may have known people of German descent and, you know, and they looked similar, as it were. Or, or actually were German. One of the, uh, just brief, one of the guys that my dad uh, spent his working career with had been in the Hitler Youth in the 30s. <laughs> Um, and, uh, because his parents had died and he was orphaned and was sent to live with his grandmother in Germany. And he came back to the States in 38 and wow. fought his way from North Africa to, uh, to Salzburg, basically. Against some of his old, his Against old, his uh, old camaraden. Yeah. 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 No, it's interesting, but yes, but to, to continue the point, the, the, there was a, there was an element of racism. I mean, I, I've got a section in the book where Ernie Pyle, who of course is the famous, a Pulitzer Prize winning war correspondent who has really up to this point, up until 1945, covered the European theatre, the Mediterranean European theatre. And one of the first things he admits uh, when he's writing about his decision to go to the Pacific and when he first goes out there and he meets the first Japanese prisoners of war is that he has this kind of natural aversion to them, you know, and he he, he admits that it's racist. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about it. So that that is well documented up to a point, but that does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that, that American servicemen to a man are going to behave in a bestial way towards Japanese soldiers, certainly civilians that they come across on the ground. They they were not inevitably going to, and they did not inevitably uh, behave like that. What also happens, and this cannot be taken out of the equation, is they have experience of fighting an unbelievably highly motivated, cruel and brutal foe in the sense that a Japanese soldier, there are many instances of this, will surrender and then attack the people trying to take him surrender. He will be wounded and still attempt to kill the person who's trying to tend to his wounds. You know, American servicemen through experience became very, very cautious about taking prisoners of war. And by the time you get to Okinawa, uh, tragically, or, you know, very sad to consider this, on the whole, they didn't take many Japanese uh, prisoners, whether they'd been prepared to, to, to hand themselves over or not. I, I stress that wasn't the case in every situation, but certainly the way a lot of the American servicemen were speaking in their letters home and in their diaries and in their written accounts, uh, they didn't have a terribly high opinion of the Japanese. And you may argue that there was good reason for that. Yeah, I, I can just imagine a, a, the, uh, a Marine who's been, I mean, there are very few Marines who had made it from Guadalcanal to Okinawa. If they had, they've learned a lot by that time about how to make it through Okinawa. Yeah. Um, and one of them is to be, uh, at the very least, highly cautious of any prisoner. That, um, exactly right. Any surrendering Japanese, yeah. Just a, a um, very minor point about that, Al. The the, the policy at, at this stage for Marines was Marines and and uh, American um, uh, soldiers, for that matter, is that once you've done three tours in the Pacific, you you were rotated back home. So yep. I, I'm not saying not a single soldier, one or two might have might have slipped through the net, as it were. But generally speaking, the last of the Canal veterans went back after Peleliu. Yes. Uh, um, that's sorry, a three island marine, or there was, or you know, there might, there might have been, there might have been five or six, five island, um, four island marines. But yeah, you're, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, that's that is right. Um, the results of the um, Okinawa are um, let's let's do the, the let's leave the 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 more um, dramatic one uh, to second. The U um, actually have a number of PTSD uh, cases actually that occurred during the battle. Just absolute combat fatigue, running into the wall, and it's it's shockingly high. Can you talk about that and sort of the the long term effects of Okinawa on those who served there? Yes, it was it was really striking to me actually that the reaction of a lot of American servicemen in terms of breaking down on the battlefield, literally on the battle battlefield. It reminded me of the First World War, and and it reminded me of the First World War with very good reason. One, the statistics. We'll come to those in a second. But two, the conditions mm. with which in which they were fighting on the battlefield. You know, there there, there's, there are various accounts that I I have in the in the book about the description of the battlefield. You know, the the. the the actual hellish conditions they were fighting in, it got very wet during one stage of the battle. And so not only did you have to put up with, you know, 
the consequences of such a brutal, close-knit type of fighting and the difficulty of, of getting the Germans to surrender with body parts all over the place and feces and the battlefield literally littered with, with body parts and, and, um, and, and the detritus of battle. You, you also had the, the, the absolute certainty among those servicemen who were fighting there, particularly after it got wet and the ground was waterlogged, that, that just to get another 10 yards, to get another 20 yards, to get another 50 yards was going to cost them a lot of their friends uh, and it may cost them their lives. And as a result of that, uh, something like a third of all American casualties on Okinawa, and the casualties were about give or take about 75,000, and about a third of those were PTSD. So battle fatigue, there were lots of different uh, terms for it. But basically, people cracking up under the strain of the combat conditions in which they were expected to fight. And those are some of the highest statistics I've seen since the uh, since the First World War. Uh, there were other instances of, of, of similar sorts of casualties in other theatres in the Second World War. But, the, the, you know, the, this is really unprecedented, and it'll give you a sense of of the absolute pitiless nature of the fighting on the one hand and the sort of conditions which I've already tried to describe and done <laughs> done very ineffectively but some of the most moving passages in my view in the book are, are first-hand quotes from from Marines and, and American soldiers describing what they're going through now when the battle is over you, you'd like to think that's an end to it uh, and uh, for those of them lucky enough to actually got through the battle and get home to the United States it wasn't the end of it. And, and again, I think the long-term consequences of, of the, uh, I'd love to do a survey of this. I'd love someone to do a study of this to see if there was much difference between those people coming back from the European theater and those, those of them who came back from the Pacific. And I would suggest there would have been, because I don't believe from what I've read and what I've researched in relation to the European theater, as far as the allies were concerned, that conditions were anything like as bad. It wasn't a bed of roses, of course, but you know they are degrees of awfulness, and I think Okinawa plumbed those depths to the very bottom. Mm -hmm. um, the you make a very strong case, um, and it's kind of crazy that I've never read this before. Um, no, actually, I've read this like there's a throwaway sentence uh, in relation to the atomic bombs. They say something like. Okinawa had convinced American planners that the invasion of the home islands would be very difficult, um, <laughs> which after reading <clears throat> the majority of your book, you say, you say, you said, bloody right, it'll be difficult. I mean, now you have a really graphic understanding of why um, American planners are so horrified. And yet um, the that discussion is always confined to carpeted offices in the White House. Um, rather than the battlefield of Okinawa. So could you describe um, how you think Okinawa fits into the decision to drop the atomic bombs, which by the end of the battle hadn't yet been tested, I should emphasize. That's right. And the, the dates are very interesting because the, the battle starts on the 1st of April, as you already pointed out. And just a few days later, Roosevelt dies, uh, dies suddenly. I mean, he's been unwell, but certainly for the American people and the American servicemen fighting Okinawa, it's a hell of a shock. Um, yeah, when my mother was a little girl and uh, on an army base uh, in Oklahoma, and she was befuddled because she didn't think that they could have a president other than Franklin Roosevelt. She thought that was just the way it was. So long, hadn't he? And you know, yeah, it's, exactly. It's not to be underestimated the shock to the system that 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 must have been to to a lot of Americans at that time. Um, what you now have is a new president um, who comes into office while this final, well, they didn't think it was going to be final, but while this major battle is taking place in Okinawa, but also a president who knows nothing about the development of nuclear weapons. Um, he is a president who, over the course of the next couple of months, uh, is receiving, of course, all the casualty reports coming back from Okinawa on the one hand. And he's also in regular, uh, because he's now being kept up to speed with what's going on. He, as the president, he has to know, as the vice president, he didn't have to know. But as a president, he has to know about the, Ameri about the atomic weapons program. And slowly but surely, uh, as the battle near, nears its end, and more importantly, from the perspective of nuclear weapons, as the development of those nuclear weapons gets closer to a point where they're actually going to test them out. Again, there's the danger of hindsight looking here. Um, Al, in the sense that uh, they didn't know for sure whether these nuclear weapons were ever going to work, and therefore, would they ever be a viable alternative? So where these two stories meet is this crucial meeting on the 18th of June, 
1945 in Washington. Now, back in Okinawa, we're almost at the end of the battle. That is the day that uh, Buckner, the American general, is killed. Uh, the, the senior most general on, in US forces to die during the Second World War. In fact, there was another lieutenant general killed in the Northwest, uh, in, in Europe. But in, in any case, for a lieutenant general to die in a battle is an unusual occurrence. And, uh, and on that day, Buckner dies. But the battle is already uh, effectively over. It's, it's the last embers of Japanese resistance on the island. So while you've got the battle coming to a close, on the one hand, you've got this crucial meeting in Washington. And at that meeting, Was um, Truman asks his senior military and political advisors uh, to uh, discuss how they are going to bring the war to a close against the Japanese. The war in Europe's ended, of course. That's also happened during the course of Okinawa. So you, you, you've got Japan as the last frontier, as it were. How are we going to bring J Japan to... Uh, how are we going to get them to a point where they're going to surrender, not just surrender any old way, but surrender unconditionally? This is really the key conundrum here, because the Japanese had effectively accepted that they weren't going to win the war, but they were hoping to bloody the American nose so badly that they could get a decent, um, they could get decent terms out of, out of negotiations, which would in effect allow them to keep some of their, some of their ill gotten gains, their, 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 the expansion that they, that had achieved so effectively earlier on in the war. The Americans, of course, weren't going to have any truck with that. And that had been decided, um, you know, by, the allies at earlier conferences. So the question is, how are you going to get the Japanese to surrender? We have this crucial meeting on the 18th of June in which they discuss the next phase. Now, that next phase is going to be the invasion of the Japanese home islands. It's going to take place in two uh, stages. First of all, in November 1945, with the invasion of Kyushu, the most southerly of the home islands, uh, that's going to involve about 750,000 men. And then the following spring, the second half of what is known in these two components as Operation Downfall, um, which is the invasion of Japan, they're going to invade Honshu, the main island. And a combina the combination of those two, they don't know for sure how many casualties they're going to take, but during the course of that meeting on the 18th of June, they discuss the possibility of casualties, and Marshall, who is the uh, US Army's chief of staff, uh, makes it very clear they're going to take enormous casualties. They don't include it in the records for that meeting, but certainly people who were at that meeting said afterwards they, they were all of the opinion it was, they, it was going to cost about a million Allied casualties to capture Japan proper and probably more. So that's what they're thinking now at this point. Now, also during the course of that meeting, they have discussed Okinawa, uh, the severity of the fighting there. And it is definitely part of the equation, the consideration of the nature of the fighting, the huge American casualties, comparatively speaking, on Okinawa, the enormous number of civilian, Japanese civilians who are lost at Okinawa, uh, and also the Japanese servicemen too. What is often forgotten in the calculation about the use of nuclear weapons is that Truman himself is not just considering the saving of American servicemen. He's considering the saving of American of Japanese lives, both servicemen and civilians. Uh, there's no question of that. And there's this really quite extraordinary quote uh, that Truman comes out with in relation to all of this calculation, in which he fears that the invasion of Japan will be like Okinawa from one end to another. And that very much gives you a sense that What's happening on Okinawa is in his mind. So at the end of that meeting on the 18th of June, he says, OK, you've told me what's going to happen. You've told me the likely casualties. Do we have any other option? And McCloy, who's the Assistant Secretary of State for War, pipes up, well, yes, we do. And it's the nuclear weapon. So what they effectively agree with at the end of that meeting is they don't know for sure whether nuclear weapons are, are going to work. They haven't actually tested one out. So what is agreed is that the planning for the invasion of Kyushu in November 1945 will go ahead. Uh, meanwhile, they will also continue the, the testing for the atomic bomb. And if it's proven to work, they will then make a decision as to whether or not they should use it. So historians love to make periods. They love to disagree with other people's periodizations. Um, uh, and hopefully we don't take them too seriously. But it reading this and thinking about it makes me realize that somehow the world changes not after the dropping of the atomic bomb, but really it, 
by the end of Okinawa closes the door on something and then opens a door to something else. And in many ways, the war is still going on, but we're moving into some where the rest of it is more like the, the modern age that we've grown up with and, and know. Um, it, it, it wasn't going to be the same after Okinawa. I, I, I agree. I, I think that's right. Al. I think I think it's uh, it's such a shock to the system, really. The, the, there's this realization that as bad as Okinawa was, it, it's only going to get a lot worse. There's, there's a, they have lost the stomach to to accept the sort of casualties, and and I stress again, not just American casualties, but the sort of casualties that are going to need to be taken if they're going to invite, if they are going to fight conventionally for the Japanese home islands. You you have a binary decision at this point. You have a, a brand new weapon which has never been used before, but it has the capacity to dislocate the enemy to such an extent that it's hard to believe for any of the American planners, and that's how, of course, it, it turned out, that an opponent who uh, has no defense against this weapon can possibly continue the conflict. Um, and that's exactly what how it turned out. It, it's, I think it's incredibly difficult for any of us, looking back in the 21st century, to, to seriously argue that if we had been in Truman's place we wouldn't have done the same thing you you may you may want to believe you wouldn't have done the same thing for all kinds of moral reasons but just put yourself in his position as president of the united states and ask yourself whether or not he had honestly had any option and i don't think he did hmm. well when you read this um it 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 seems that okinawa is warfare taken to its most either its logical extent or to its most awful brutal um subterranean level um, and, and you begin to wonder, at least I did, um, why isn't all warfare like this? This is warfare stripped away of everything. Um, why doesn't warfare always reach this hell-like, um, level? And so I'm asking you, the military historian who's written the book. Well, I think there, there are moments where you have a perfect storm in which all those those alleviating elements fall away, the you know the the, the kind of I don't know the sense that the G Geneva Conventions or the fact that you're fighting someone who's basically like you and you don't both want to behave like beasts at the same time. There are lots and lots of factors why warfare never gets quite as bad as it does at Okinawa. But when you strip away some of those safety nets, as it were, mm -hmm. this is what can always happen and has always happened. I mean, we'd be absolutely foolish not to imagine that, that this sort of thing hasn't happened before you know well i i'm not a particular expert in the wars of the of the 16th and 17th century but you know the 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 so-called 30 years war in 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 germany and europe generally in in the middle of the 17th century was up up until the second world war was considered to be as bad as it ever got not least because civilians were often drawn into it and i think that's what's particularly shocking about okinawa is is the is the toll it takes on civilians you know it's it's bad enough for the servicemen but for the civilians to be to be dragged into it and for that many to die you know you really you cannot believe it can get much worse i think it's far and away that the, the worst fighting i've seen involving the allies that certainly there are comparisons needless to say on the eastern front between the russians and the germans but it's as bad as it gets for i think american servicemen to have to face probably in their history you know i i i i'm a bit worried about making that sort of pronouncement because i'm not an expert in american warfare right the way through the ages but i find it hard to believe that american servicemen have ever fought on a battlefield as pitiless as okinawa mm. so Cold Harbor and Petersburg might come close, but the crater, I'm thinking. Yeah, of. the crater, the crater. That's true. That's true. And yeah, I, I had a feeling, um, Al, you're going to be able to bring up one or two examples. But yeah, for, for, that's about it, though. For pretty much all the servicemen who fought on Okinawa, certainly those who fought in the front line. I mean, it was it, it was of course different as it always is for those further back. But those who fought in the front line, um, they all had to stare into the depths of the abyss, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And it does explain. Uh, getting back to your earlier point, why so many of them found it difficult to forget what they'd been through and their lives were blighted as a result. And I think one of the reasons why I'm not, not pleased that I've written this book, because it was it was about as upsetting as any material I've ever had to deal with in, in, in my, um, my reasonably long career as a historian. It's that if you're going to think about war and ever consider it as a viable alternative to politics and diplomacy, you better know what you're going to get yourself, you could be getting yourself into. And this is as mm -hmm. bad as it can get, but it can get like this and it could get like this in the future. No, I mean, I, I've just written a book, which partly, well, 
focuses a, a little bit on cow pens, which is compared to Okinawa is like a Laura Ashley catered tea party between dear, dear friends. Um, I, I would much rather have policymakers read about Okinawa than uh, cow pens yeah. you know, for that very reason. Um, Calpins makes it all look so easy and simple and neat. Yeah, there was that. I don't know if you. There's no reason why you should have seen it, but there was a there was a review of my book by a, a, a British historian who said, you know, th thank goodness for the first time someone has ex has has laid out before us in all its grim and gory detail what war is actually like. Um, I, mm. I, th I think, <laughs> I, you know, we have to. I mean, given the number of books you've written before, that is a little offensive, but all right. Mm. Well, I, I didn't take it like that, actually. But now you okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be going back to saying what about. Yeah, but e even compared to some of the earlier conflicts I've written about, th this was worse. It, it's, of course, warfare is always grim, but there's grim and there's grim, and, and this is as bad as it gets. Yeah. So how did you research this book? Um, did you learn Japanese? Um, what did you read? And, I, I, uh, I didn't learn Japanese. Uh, <laughs> I was absolutely de determined to tell the story from all perspectives. Uh, and so I did a little bit of uh, I did a little bit of preparation work by speaking to other people who had worked on Japanese subjects, subject, some of whom did speak Japanese and, and wanted to know what was available in terms of the Japanese archives. Actually, uh, to be truthful, Al, even if they'd said to me, well, there's a wonderful treasure trove, but you need to speak Japanese and you need to go into the archives in Tokyo, I would have done that. I wouldn't have learned Japanese. I'd have taken a translator in with me. I know it sounds like a totally <laughs> lazy no, no, thing, but it, it would have certainly have been quicker. What they actually said to me is there are very few useful records uh, that really? survived, that survived the Second World War. Where the real sure. treasure trove uh, came, both in terms of my uh, being able to flesh out the, the Japanese side in the book and also the Okinawan side, were, were two main sources. The first source is this incredible uh, series of debriefs that uh, the American um, military do after the Second World War, in which they talk to an enormous number of senior people on the Japanese side from, from you know, the, the chiefs of staff, the war ministers, and then all the way down the track to, to uh, more junior officers about their experiences, the decisions they take, they took and what, and what, and, you know, and how the war uh, went the way it did. Now you've always got the slight risk, of course, of this being filtered, filtered through the eyes of the conquerors. Uh, but nevertheless, you've got a, an amazing treasure trove of, accounts taken very soon after the Second World War, and they, uh, thankfully and inevitably, have already been translated. So they, they've been used by many historians before me, but none have been used in, in such a, uh, a comprehensive way for this particular campaign. And as I, I was able to add on top of that, um, I did go to Tokyo, so I easily could have gone into the archives. But as I say, I was advised that there was no point because there was nothing really to see there. But I then hopped over to Okinawa for two reasons. One, to see the ground, to see the battlefield. It's always important to do that, I think, if you're going to write about, about uh, warfare. And secondly, to see what archives were still available on the island. And interestingly enough, I had, I had no tips that there would be much there. And I was very um, uh, pleasantly surprised to find in a number of the so-called peace museums, which is very much a Japanese term, uh, mm. Second World War, uh, in those peace museums, accounts written by Okinawans of their experiences both before and during the battle. And I was and, and a lot of them have been translated too. So I was able to bring a lot of a lot of those accounts back. And and again, those had never been used in terms of the uh, writing of the history of the Battle of Okinawa before. Well you've um you began writing books about the well I have to say I'm not sure you've I think you started writing books about the Victoria's Little Wars right uh, that was the sort of the 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 revolution or mutiny of 1857 um other yeah. uh focusing on that period um and then you've moved up sort of inevitably into well maybe not inevitably to an American battle at the very end of the Second World War um how did you get there? What's 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 are you just writing about what you're interested in, uh, or is there a do you have a sort of um, do you do you have a project in mind? It sounds a bit random, doesn't it? And I suppose in some ways it is. I, actually, if truth be told, Al, um, my my first two books were both on the Second World War, and they both involved relatively obscure stories about British soldiers, actually Highland soldiers, in fact, so Scots soldiers. Uh, one, the story of the Highlanders in 1940, and the other about a, a famous mutiny that took place in Salerno 
um, which of course was chiefly an American beachhead in Italy in 1943. So I did have a little bit of form writing about the Second World War. And mm. given that I'd researched and written those books in the 1990s, when an awful lot of servicemen were, were still alive, and and for the Salerno, uh, sorry, for the first of those two books, the the Highlanders in 1940, I interviewed more than 100 veterans. Um, I, I I think I was a little bit punch drunk with. Uh, the experience of interviewing veterans and I wanted to move back. I didn't want to move back, but I chose to move back to a period in history. That is the Victorian period where I would really be relying on written sources. It's, it's archived <laughs> entirely. It goes. Is it easier than dealing with actual human subjects? Well, there's an emotional, I know, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to make too much of this, but there is an emotional cost at, at interviewing veterans, huh. which anyone who's worked in, you know, the two world wars in particular, but, but any, any oral history in which you interview veterans, uh, you will know that you have to live through their experiences and it's an incredibly draining experience. I mean, I suppose if you're a sociopath, uh, Al, you might yeah, not know, yeah. but, but for the rest of us, it's, it's really quite an upsetting experience. And I, I found that very draining. And so uh, I moved, back to the Victorian period um the material by the way for the Indian mutiny I mean I was talking I talk about Okinawa being as bad as it gets actually there's a, there's a lot yeah. of bad stuff going on in that yeah, yeah I, I thought of that when I when I when I saw and I when I as soon as I said that I thought of the Indian mutiny yeah yeah so and but no there was no great strategy I think as a military historian you know I started I wrote my first two books before I had a doctorate I then did a bit more academic work I, I now teach as well as write books now and I think, you know, one of the great pleasures about being a military historian is you're not really restricted to a particular period. It makes sense, of course, if you become familiar with a, a period for obvious reasons, like it does for any historian. But military historians believe, rightly or wrongly, that the, the kind of rules of, of, of war can be extended through, through a lot of different periods. And I've actually written about warfare as far back as Roman times. So I don't restrict myself to the 19th or 20th century, although most of my books tend to be in those areas. What's particularly interested me about the work on American subjects, this is the second book I've written uh, chiefly on American subjects, and I, I've got a third one upcoming, is that it very much mm. takes me out of my comfort zone. I have to get into a different mindset, um, a, a different country's mindset, and I have to work a long way from home in foreign archives, which on the one hand is expensive and and logistically difficult but on the other hand very exciting and and a great privilege and i i have to say i found i didn't mention for the okinawan book but okinawan book the archives i went to see but you know particularly the u.s marine archives in in quantico virginia i mean there are some wonderful resources in america for archival research for historians and uh are they those are those are brand new those are the ones in the marine museum now right they, they, uh, they, they in the marine. I think they're in the marine. We're certainly right next door to the to the museum. I, yeah. I went there a couple of years ago. It was quite difficult getting access. I have to say, I had to go through my embassy and I had to get official clearance, mainly because, it, as you well know, it's it's a, it's a military base and there and there's a certain amount of security uh, required for obvious reasons. Um, but once I was in there, they couldn't have been nicer. They couldn't have been more helpful. And actually, surprisingly, given the you know how large the U.S. Marine Corps looms in in American martial history. Uh, they'd had a surprisingly few number of serious uh, historical researchers actually working there. Yeah, um, yeah, it's true. Um, and uh, one of them being a former guest and future guest, Rod Andrew, teaches at Clemson and is writing a political military history now about uh, how the Marine Corps survived after the Second World War. And uh, a lot of it has to do with the Iwo Jima picture yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and Okinawa as well. You know, so, I, I sometimes uh, think of that Iwo Jima picture. I know it's it's not not an identical parallel, but I sometimes think of it as the, as the you know, the, the, the sort of PR coup that the SAS were able to take out of the uh, yeah. out of the embassy siege in 1980, and of course it has its disadvantages as well as its advantages. It does um, it does yeah? But I, you, you can see that it's still a very iconic um, uh, image today, as is those pictures of of the of the USM uh, of the Iranian embassy siege in 1980. Yeah. So I'm um, just to finish up. Um, let's talk about your disturbingly almost immoral productivity. Um, like uh, Adrian Goldsworthy, uh, who's uh, been on the podcast a couple times, uh, you obviously have decided uh, you got bored with the <laughs> laggardly uh, academic and, and trade publishers and decided that you needed to uh, stop wasting so much time and write more. Uh, so you've written novels. 
Um, you've written uh, Zulu Heart, Heart of Empire, and I think a one about Jack the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, which I that, that was that was uh, that that was a googly that, yeah, that, that caught me that, off guard. That really was out of left field. Um, it, it was a moment in time. Uh, some good has come out of it. Actually, I have to say, a, a, a lot of goods come out of it. But you know, wonderful privilege to be asked as a historian because that's what happened to me by a publisher if I would consider writing fiction. And this was very much in the time of the boom of historical fiction in the UK, at least in the um, in the early two thousands and. There was a feeling that the that what you get out of out of good historical fiction is is not only a good story you would hope, but also uh, you learn a bit of history. And so, what better to to match a historian with with a, a good story? Uh, and you know that they there was very much a feeling among some publishers that you could manufacture a historical novelist, and that's very much what they tried with me. Now, I probably won't write a novel. Don't 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 literally hold me to that, Al, because you you never say no. <laughs> But one of the benefits for me of doing it, apart from the fact that you talk about productivity, it did put back my writing of serious history a little bit. But but one of the advantages of having done it is that it's very much got me thinking of history even more than I did before as a story, as a narrative. You know, if you want people to read history, if you want if you want your books to sell and you want to reach the widest possible audience, you have to make the story as accessible as possible. It has to be very much people-based. Uh, it has to drive along, not quite with the pace of a novel. I mean, one of the striking things that I remember one of the my <laughs> editors when I was working on fiction saying to me is he he said, why have you got this detail about, you know, some obscure detail? And I said, well, you know, I, 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 I discovered and I thought I'd get it in there. And he said, well, well is, it, is it affecting the plot in any way? And I said, no, no, it, isn't it interesting? He said, if it doesn't affect the plot, it comes out. It's, it's of no interest to us if it's not relevant. That, of course, does not apply to history books. You absolutely can go down all kinds of rabbit holes if you choose to. But what writing fiction has trained me to do is to keep the story moving forward at pace and to not overpeople it with too many characters. I mean, of course, history has you know thousands of characters. But if, if, if in any way you can allow the reader to associate with a fewer number of people whose lives you flesh out to a certain extent, you allow them to get a sense of who they are and what they're doing. I think it makes it a much uh, easier experience, a much more enjoyable experience for people to read history. And even if the, the conditions like they are in the Okinawan book, Crucible of Hell, are pretty grim, uh, at least in some ways, you've got a sense as a person of what it must have been like to have been there. My guest today has been Saul David. He's the author most recently of Crucible of Hell, The Heroism and Tragedy of Okinawa, 1945. Saul David, thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. Cheers, Al. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.